and calling it, I remember my Arabic teacher calling it the, um, she called it the Turkish occupation, which was intriguing for me because um, nothing else is called an occupation in that context. And when I pressed her on it a little bit, I remember in those days, saying, but wasn't it a khilafah? And she turned around and goes, yes, it was. I said, so how's it an occupation? And my, my concern has always been when people ask me, for example, how come we know Ghazali and Taymiyyah, yeah. but we don't know the ulama of the Ottoman Empire? Ulama of the late Ottoman Empire, the ones who made Ghazali and Taymiyyah alive again. Because it was a manuscript culture, then being able to those manuscripts would have been hidden in a madrasa somewhere where you wouldn't have been able to read them. So can you explain what the majalla is? Yeah, yeah, good questions. <laughs> yeah, so the majalla is a form of codification of civil law, which was put into a. I mean, I know form. obviously, but I'm yeah. saying for the, <laughs> no. for the viewers at home. Islam is like the elephant in the room. It's there, but it's not really there. Right. So if you look at the early Ottomans, they're like pagans who didn't know what they were doing. And then, you know, you have the conquest of Istanbul, but these are just Christian traditions. And then you have, you know, Suleiman and Selim, but they're not really caliphs. And then you have like the decline period where nobody knows what they're doing. And then the 19th century is a secularization and then a nation state. And what you realize is where's the Islam? There's just, just... Wahhabism in particular, it has the real problem. Actually, it gives the green light of rebellion in some way because it's the first movement that pushes for rebellion it's the one that says the ottomans are far this shirk and we're going to go for this you know we're just not going to accept it intriguing because the irony today is that would never be called for the kingdom of saudi arabia right now Assalamu alaikum and welcome to this special edition of the Islam Tunisia Unscripted podcast. We have uh, all the way from Istanbul, Turkey, Dr. Yaqub Ahmed. Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Yaqub. Wa alaikum salam. And of course, we have uh, uh, my partner in crime today, our uh, history and Islamic studies editor, Kashif Zakiuddin. Assalamu alaikum, Sal Kashif. Wa alaikum salam, So, the reason why it's a special uh, uh, edition of the Islam Tunisia podcast is because this month, a hundred years ago. I'm told by our history editor that the Ottoman Empire was officially abolished. Uh, so I'm going to be just, uh, uh, you know, so Saad Kash was saying, you know, we need you here um, to basically represent people who don't know much about history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm here to kind of eat popcorn and watch you guys speak. Uh, but oh, just to, just to you know, maybe interject if there's anything unclear to the non-history buff, the non-historians uh, out there. So you're sure. welcome. Uh, and the first question I have is basically mm. pretty much to set the scene. Uh, mm. What does it mean for the Ottoman Empire to have been abolished a hundred years ago? Because we have we also have this other date, which is 1924, where the Ottoman Khilafah was officially abolished. So, what's the difference between uh, Ottoman Empire being abolished and the Ot Ottoman Khilafah being abolished? Because to an ignoramus like myself, they're both the same. So. With that question, I hand it over to you, Kashif. That's the, uh, that's, that's the segue. Right, Bismillah. Uh, so yeah. it's fantastic to have you uh, finally on, uh, Dr. Yaqub. Uh, you know, as an avid uh, uh, history buff and uh, somebody who loves yeah. the Ottoman Empire, but very much a non-specialist. Uh, I've uh, right. looked forward to having this conversation with you for a long time. So um, I guess maybe uh, before we get into Salman's uh Salman's question, the way he framed that, um, mm -hmm. as as he said, just to reiterate that um, Dr. Yaqub uh, 
specialist in uh, in historian, academic historian, uh, specialist in Ottoman Empire, lecturer. Um, it's lo- like I said, lovely to have you on. Um, it's it, one hundred years since since the Ottoman Empire did uh, uh, did sort of formally come to an end. But before yeah. we get into that and we start talking about the Ottoman Empire, I thought maybe you want to sort of introduce yourself a little bit more. Um, yeah, sure. What would you like to know? So, I mean, uh, I, 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 uh, so you look like you're well. We know, not look like we know that you're in Istanbul, but you you yeah. certainly have a, a London. Even if I could uh, uh, kind of hazard a guess, a South London twang to that's your right, accent. Right. So you know, wh- you know, where'd you come from? How did you end up in? Uh, how did you end up in uh, in Istanbul? Yeah, this is interesting because I don't often talk about myself as a recluse and, and all. But um, so for me, um, I come from a regular. Um, my mum's from Pakistan, my dad was from Uganda, just regular household, working class. Mum worked in a factory, dad was retired. And um, for me, as a child, Ottoman history was not even in the imagination. That that wasn't, you know, I was playing football in the park with guys from the mosque and so on, right? So uh, if you'd have said to me up until my late 20s about being an Ottoman historian, I just laughed in your face. That was just not part of the equation. But right. um what was interesting for me continuously growing up, I mean, my parents were still religious. Um, I went to Madrasa as a child, I had a tabliki jamaat sort of influence as a child growing up, which I'm exceptionally grateful for. And then you go to university and that's when things start to change. You know, in university you have all sorts of people of different denominations and different Islamic backgrounds. And the Bosnian war in of itself was quite influential as a child for me. I remember leaving my local mosque and uh, there was a sister who was quite animated at the fact i mean i was only 16 but she was quite animated at the fact that i was laughing coming out of the mosque and she held me to account about some of the atrocities in bosnia which made me think twice as a 16 year old but i still wasn't very politically active but then on campus you start to to so, sort of um, interact with different people from different backgrounds obviously what, where did you as i was saying where did you um where did you go to university what did you study so initially i went to roehampton i did business computing so okay. I had zero, like I said, wow. zero interest. So in yeah, it's a long, long way from business computing <laughs> yeah. to studying yeah. the Tanzi Mart and uh... yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I I was, um, you know, doing business computing. I even worked in the sector. I was working in Sheffield, um, in, in the field as a desktop tester and so forth. But it was when I went to Syria that things actually changed. Um, I, I as a Muslim, I wasn't comfortable with the sort of like um, the sort of Islam that I understood, and I think. I don't know, I can't speak for most people, but I definitely felt in my sort of like milieu, there was a lot of us young guys who we were learning Islam from various different peoples and groups and movements. We were interacting with the mosque and coming at home, but there was still this um, just agitation of how authentic was our experience. So for me, I decided to go to Syria to learn Arabic in 2007 was the first time I went. And then I was working there to try try to make ends meet. Um, I, I was teaching English at an American school. And um, there was a convert, Muslim convert. His name was Steve Ibe Abdurrahman, who um, may Allah be pleased with him because he was doing a master's in Ottoman history in Turkey. And he would come backwards and forwards. So his wife was Syrian, but he would keep going to Istanbul to do this um, master's of his with a famous Ottoman historian by the name of Mehmet Ifshirli, who was... um, uh, you know, one of those those huge icons in Ottoman studies in Turkey. And he would bring books back for me to read. Right, okay. Um, so you so went into Ottoman was, studies in, in what's well, actually in Syria, studying Arabic? Strangely enough, there was two things in Syria that sort of like 
pulled me in that direction. One was in Syria, they were the nation state was trying to sort of like hide the Ottoman past. And there was a famous market called Sukul Hamidiyah, for example, which has been Hamidiyah's market, which was named after Abdul Hamid II. There was um, the the symbol of the Hijaz railway and a lot of things like this. There was a street called Sharia Mithat Pasha. And these things just intrigued me that, that why were they being... I mean, Syrians knew of them rhetorically, but very rarely did they speak of it. And when I started asking them, um, people would often speak from the, the position of Arab nationalism and be very aggressive towards the Ottoman past. And calling it, I remember my Arabic teacher calling it the, um, she called it the Turkish occupation, which was intriguing for me because um, nothing else is called an occupation in that context. And when I pressed her on it a little bit, I remember in those days, saying, but wasn't it a khilafah? And she turned around and goes, yes, it was. I said, so how's it an occupation? And then she sort of like backtracked and it was a strange place to be. I remember then meeting Sheikh Bouti in, in Damascus. Right. And, and having an interest, and he was quite pro-Ottoman in many ways. I mean, so I was going to ask, family. yeah, was that attitude you found on the Arab, well, Arab street become such a kind of uh, thing you term? But um, was was it a uniform opinion? Not really. I mean, it was a strange opinion. So on the one hand, the educational system on the Arab street was one of Arab nationalism. So what they were getting in the in the high schools was a particular narrative of that period. But when was, when you spoke to the ulama in particular, they had a very different position on it. Uh, they, they, they saw it as a, as a position which, which should not be criticized and it should be something that should be studied and taught, which was intriguing for me. So when my mum got sick in London, I came back and did a master's at SOAS. Um, oh, right, in so East same place. Right, I was at, right, yeah. Yes, yeah, so I had no intention of coming back. So wait, what, what, year, what years were you at SOAS? Uh, 2008. Right, okay, I was long, yeah. not long gone by then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you I, I were in Syria no as well, weren't you? I was also in Syria, yeah. but again, yeah. a, lot, a lot earlier. So yeah. yeah. So but, you have to go the funny fighting side of it, just to make it clear. A long way before there was this. I had zero intention of doing Ottoman studies. I mean, actually, I wanted to study in Abu Nur, which was like a seminary to study Ulum I, I started to think like that when I was in Syria, thinking that I could become a better Muslim right. in, in, in a way of doing that. But when my mother got sick, the second person who was quite influential at the time was an American, my boss, who was American, Steve. And he says, you know what? You're, you're not any less academically um, intelligent than some of the guys that are here. Why don't you go to academia? And I was like, it's not for me. But he encouraged me to apply for a master's in, oh, in wow. the UK. So I applied for the master's and I got accepted at SOAS. And I took a module on Ottoman studies. And my lecturer at the time, Benjamin Fortner, he was very warm yeah, and welcoming. Yeah, yeah lecturer, he was, my old lecturer as well. Right. So, so you know about him. He was great. And I remember I was struggling. I literally was struggling. My first essay, I, I, I really, I, I, I messed that up. And I went to him. I said, I, I don't know what I'm doing here. And he just, I remember his words, I still remember them. He says, look, I don't care if you write it in hip hop, so long as I understand it. That's all I'm interested in. <laughs> and I thought to myself, okay, you know, because I'm a South London kid, um, you know, str struggled in my GCSE, struggled in my A-levels. I was a smart kid, but, you know, education wasn't something that I took seriously because of the background I was from and sort of the household. And it was only after my return from, from Syria that, that, that I took education seriously because I really wanted to do something. Passed my master's, alhamdulillah. Then went to Turkey. And um, I was living in Turkey. And there was a friend of mine who was an Ottoman historian. Alhamdulillah, he put me up in his home. Um, he, get, he got me a job. Um, and he was helping me to become an Ottoman historian. But unfortunately, so this, he this passed away. After your master's, but before you what, enrolled yeah. for a PhD anyway? 
Yeah, that's right. So I didn't involve for a PhD until another five years. Oh, wow. Right. So I took a big gap. I, I then went to Turkey. He passed away. And that was devastating for me because he was sort of my mentor. His name was Yücel Dala. Really, really wonderful man. And, um, you know, he let me stay in his apartment for free. Um, he just wanted me to be a good Ottoman historian. And then when he passed away, I went back to Syria because um, I didn't want to come back to London. I didn't want to feel like a failure. And then I stayed in Syria and then I came to London back and then things kicked off with the so-called Arab Spring and I couldn't go back. So then I decided, and I was a foster parent by this time. This time I was in the foster industry, sort of like helping Muslim children who, who one of the things that we have in, in England at the moment is we don't have enough foster parents for Muslim children. So my family decided to go to that avenue and I was a, a helping hand there. And I remember going to a talk for Ottoman studies at SOAS because I was still interested. And my supervisor, Yorgos Dedes, at the time, he asked me, what are you doing with your life? And I said, oh, I'm a foster parent. And he was very disappointed that I hadn't kicked on and done a PhD. So he invited me to take Ottoman study classes, Ottoman language, for free. And so just turn up and just turn up to classes once a week if you can. And I was exceptionally dedicated. And I did that. And then he goes, why don't you apply for a PhD? So I did. And I applied to SOAS and I applied to Exeter. So I applied to two places. And I got accepted at SOAS, but I didn't accept the offer. And he was very concerned. He was going, why are you not accepting the offer? And I said, I need to be accepted at Exeter. He goes, but why? And I said to him, because I want to be sure that you're accepting me on the on the merit of my work, <laughs> not because you like me. Right, right. And well, did he know, did just, he know you from your time when you were there? But he knew me during my master's. Right, he okay. knew me during my master's. But he sure. was saying, look, we're, we're, this is a professional outfit. What the hell are you talking about? This is not how we operate. But I was still like with this imposter syndrome, was not convinced right. and said, no, until Exeter accept me, I will not accept it. If Exeter rejects me, then I'll reject the position at SOAS as well, because I just don't think I should do this. I got accepted oh. at Exeter one day before the deadline ended for SOAS. I then accepted SOAS and then I did my PhD and then I came to Turkey and then, yeah, as they say, the rest is history. And now Exeter is still waiting. <laughs> so, so they actually sent me a letter i remember when i rejected it saying why did you do that and so forth and i mean I, yeah i mean i i, I don't know I, I i was i didn't make a rational decision it was a very emotional one mm. um but alhamdulillah things work out for for whatever reasons alhamdulillah fantastic yeah. so yeah. you uh, ended up back at SOAS doing a PhD, what, what was the subject? What did you end up doing on? So my PhD was on the role on the Ottoman ulama in the Constitutional Revolution of 1908 and 1909. So I was basically looking at the ulama in opposition to Abdul Hamid, the ulama in constitutional politics, the ulama also um, in terms of their role in revolutionary activities. I was looking at these sort of, and that wasn't my interest actually. My interest was I saw a picture with the ulama, a photograph of the ulama in the parliament. And I found that intriguing, um, that there were members of the ulama in a parliament. And I was thinking, like, what's that about? So initially, my, my thought process was to, to chase members of the Ottoman ulama as parliamentarians. But it led me down a track where I had to I had to see what predicated that. And what predicated that was this whole movement involved in constitution, like, constitutionalism within the caliphate system, right. which is what, what actually emerged in that sense. And then there was revolutionary moments. Okay. And so then it's once again, it's like, okay, well, why have the ulama turned against Abdul Hamid II, who's known as the Pious Sultan? Right. So, I mean, you 
for the audience, you've mentioned uh, a few terms and a few things there that hopefully we'll get uh, into as the conversation proceeds, sure. like, uh, you know, the constitutional period, yeah. Sultan Abdul Hamid II, and, and yeah. you know, various other uh, terms and ideas that uh-huh. might not be completely uh, familiar to um, to the audience. But um, to someone. Uh, no, it's uh, <laughs> interesting to give, for those who are. You know, we're going to get a varied yeah. audience. Some of yeah. some of the listeners, some of the viewers will be very familiar with those things and will be interested yeah. to know exactly right. what your what your thesis subject yeah. was uh, on. I take it's not published yet. No, so uh, I've I've sent it to the publisher uh two months ago and um it's going through the review process so i'm just waiting to see what happens with that can't wait. Can't wait like it. yeah, it sounds like a riveting read uh, yeah. very much I so, so yeah i'm really interested in the, the role of the ulama in the constitutional reform of 1908 and 1909 so, so well more... you know just whether that's a joke or not i'm not sure but i'll tell you something that for me what was intriguing was I wasn't as much interested in Ottoman history as I was in the history of the ulama of the 19th century. Right. And it's, there's not a, there's not a simply an absence of the Ottoman studies. It's the, there's a there's a huge gap in regards to the ulama themselves, and that was what my interest was initially. But yeah. it, it's within the Ottoman framework, so then obviously I extended that out. Okay, fantastic. Yeah. So, I mean, that's one of the that's one of the, the the maybe stereotypes or things that some people say, kind mm. of a broad brushstroke of. You know, not knowing that there's that there's there's much scholarly activity, or any you know, w- well-known scholars in in that period, right? In the last right. Ex- hundred yeah. years, yeah, exactly, yeah, very much. yeah. And my my concern has always been when people ask me, for example, how comes we know Ghazali and Taymiyyah, yeah. but we don't know the ulama of the Ottoman Empire? Now we say to them that the ulama of the late Ottoman Empire, the ones who made Ghazali and Taymiyyah alive again. Because it was a manuscript culture, then being able to those manuscripts would have been hidden in a madrasa somewhere where you wouldn't have been able to read them. But after the printed press, they turned them into manuscripts for everybody to read, so you can have a copy in your in your library today. And it was those ulama who revived them. Hmm. And to some degree, um, you wouldn't have probably even known those people if it hadn't been for the late Ottoman ulama who had brought these books back to life and put them in manuscript form. I mean, the Quran itself, the mushafs, if it wasn't for a printing press. We wouldn't have had Mosas in our houses right now because Mosas were written by hand. So, I mean, apart from uh, this uh, Ottoman scholarly class and the the manuscript mm. uh, the manuscript tradition that you said was very much mm. alive as mm. a feature of the nineteenth century, I guess what we want to try to do is zoom in on the on the on the nineteenth century, perhaps sure. as the sure. final Ottoman century that leads up to its ultimate right. kind of collapse and end. Because you know, six uh, yeah. six hundred years where going to be kind of hard pressed to kind of squash that into an <laughs> yeah, hour or so this evening um what are the other salient i mean are there any other say rather than perhaps just giving a synopsis uh are there some salient features of the 19th century think listeners should know viewers should know because i mean salman already mentioned the one the kind of the perhaps the misnomer that there wasn't yeah. a scholarly uh yeah. culture um, yeah. you've kind of alluded to the fact that there was yeah. what else kind of uh, paints I the mean, picture of the 19th century so there's a lot of mis- misconceptions regarding, I mean, look, one of the things that people always say is they use the ulama like a broad brush, you know what I mean? So they'll say the ulama failed, and I would always say, but who? Give me some names, give me some people, what did they fail at? So one of the things that you see is that I think people have been unable to really imagine, and I use the word imagine deliberately, what the empire was, which is from Bosnia to Hadramaut in Yemen, right. to Libya. This is a humongous um, land space. And it's very eclectic, it's multicultural. And up until 1908, um, the majority of the subjects of the empire were non-Muslim. 
And people forget that this is a Muslim. Yeah. This is a Muslim empire ruling over predominantly non-Muslims, in that sense. Um, and it's very unique. I mean, people forget that actually, and this is, I am going back in time a little bit, Fatih's conquest of Istanbul changes the game in Islamic history totally. Never before in the history of Muslims did we conquer the center of Christendom in this way. This has never happened. So once the center of Christendom has been conquered like this, this really changes the dynamics of what it means to belong to a Muslim empire in that sense, which no one else has ever achieved either before or anywhere else. And so you start to see a different type of empire. And the 19th century is interesting because there are technological advances, steamship, printing press, um, trains, um, and this sort of technology, which which we call um, the sort of like introduction of modernity, is something we can resonate with today, but at that time it was revolutionary. The idea, I mean, I give you an example of the Ummah. So the Ummah never really imagined itself as a global Ummah in those days, because how would people know of each other? It wasn't until the printed press that you could read of each other that finally these imaginations of what it, what was happening in India, what was happening in China, what was happening in other parts of the world started to become a reality in people's imaginations. Because yes, scholars were moving and traveling and so were merchants, but now people were reading it, people were seeing photographs. And in those days, it was interesting when the photographs came into being, pictures were being used as a way of authenticating reality. Whereas now photographs are used to sort of like remove memory. But the more pictures you see, the less the less you remember. But in those days, if you saw a picture of something, you'd think it's authentic because it was very hard. But those pictures were also designed to create particular constructions. So all of these technological changes, it really changes something so um, you mean, in... Um, I mean, so you, you're mentioning technological change. Mm, One, mm, again, I guess one of the... Th- you know, for people who have this perhaps maybe somewhat stereotypical view uh, mm. of the Ottoman Empire is that technolo- te- technological change, sort of getting tongue twisted, yeah. technological change came rather late to the Ottoman Empire, um, not as not as quickly as the West. And uh, you mentioned again, printing press. Mm. There's this transition uh, mm. in the West, at least kind of the, a part of the revolutionary change in European society is often put down right. to this, this, you know, this, this shift from right. uh, manuscript culture to, uh, you know, the printing presses and, and that printing press supposedly uh, either you have things about it being either banned by the Ottomans or again yeah. being introduced very late. Again, that perhaps might help us, you know, again, sort of situate this, this period. Why, why was this happening? Why was there no uptake in technology or is that again, misnomer? Yeah. To some degree it is. I mean, look, um, one doesn't need to invent a form of technology to be able to be efficient at it. Muslims haven't invented a lot. Muslims haven't invented drones, but the Turks are fantastic at using drones. So so what you learn here is, and this is just globally known in terms of technology, there's an assumption we use the West, we use them as if the Ottomans were not part of the West. The Ottomans were a European empire. They were part of Europe in that sense, interconnected um, to every sort of technological advancement that's taking place in Europe. Where the Ottomans, what the Ottomans were concerned about regarding the printing press in particular was in the beginning, they did not want Qur'ans to be printed or books regarding Islam to be printed in the printing press because you couldn't regulate or control that. And earlier books that were being printed in parts of Europe were mainly Bibles and so on. Later on in the 19th century, when you have the ability, one, to be able to distribute these books everywhere, the revolution of paper in of itself, and the emergence of the modern educational system in which the press could now be used as a way of creating textbooks to be used in the classroom. The Ottomans and the Western Europeans, there's no gap at all, if any, um, in that sense. Now, if we're going to use the readership um, sort of like statistics of the British Empire comparison to the Ottomans, then you have to use it as the, the British Empire as a whole. How many people were reading in India 
very little. Whereas um, people, we're looking at London, the comparison of London to the Ottoman Empire, which is a little bit unfair. But Muslims, Arabic is also another problem in terms of the printed press. So the printed press is designed to be able to use Latin script. Yeah. I mean, if you look at a bar in the beginning, a bar in the middle, and a bar at the end, imagine how many letters you need for an Arabic typewriter. Right, yeah. right? And it's just practical reasons to some degree. Like, how would you do that in Chinese? Sure. It's, it, do you understand? So what people felt at the time was writing books by hand wasn't a disadvantage to some degree. But once um, journalism kicks in, once the telegram kicks in, and once textbooks and schools become necessary, the Ottomans adapt very quickly. Right. And it's not just, you know, we're not just looking at Ottoman, Turkish, or Arabic. We're looking at Ladino, we're looking at Armenian, we're looking at Greek, we're looking at the multiple languages in which these works were being um, projected. And the ulama were behind it. They were never against the printed press per se. But one last thing about the ulama that I want to highlight, which maybe some people some people feel that the ulama don't do as much today, was they were on the side of being cautious in regards to technology because of a sense of foresight. The idea is that, for example, this is what the printing press did. I'll tell you what it did and what it, the problems it created. The advantage of the printing press was it brought back manuscript. It could be used in schools, the newspapers, increased literacy, um, and so forth. The disadvantage is it hurt oral tradition. It put an emphasis on written text over the oral text. Um, memorization was hurt. And the teacher, because in those days, um, the ulama books, Muslims traditionally wrote books to be taught, not, not to be read, yeah. if you right. know what I mean. So, so it, yeah. it, it hurt the teacher. So there was a trade-off. And what the ulama often do is when a tech, form of tech comes into the domains, they actually have vigorous debates, not necessarily on halal, haram, and mubah, but the idea is what will be the consequences of this tech right, yeah. going forward, and not only in terms of our society, but apart forms of ibadat, in terms of the, the schooling system and so forth. And that's why there was a, a, a to and fro, because the ulama were not united when a form of tech came into the domains. There was like these vigorous debates of backwards and forwards because of that. So what I would say is that the Ottomans, the ulama in particular, had a form of caution when tech came in, but they weren't against it per se. And you're saying so, we don't have that today? Yeah, I was going to say, interesting you know, analogy with our own you know, time and the kind of introduction of social media. And, uh, I, always say that? That, I always say that um, uh, so for every fit council in the world in a hundred years' time are going to look back at us now and say, what the hell were they thinking? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If anyone's yeah. watching I mean, this from 20, Islam 22C or whatever, any historians... In fact, you kind yeah, of sometimes wonder, is perhaps that caution actually missing now? Because you know, there are some critics That's, of the social yeah. media and its impact on society, but right. not too many from an Islamic lens. Well, this is the thing. So, uh, I mean, to be fair, um, and I should be fair, I don't know to what degree the ulama have been cautious on the side of when tech has come into our domains today. I mean, that, but when you hear from the regular folk, is that that is something which is not happening. And so if you look at Twitter, for example, where, I mean, Twitter has its advantages, but it has a very caustic side to it. Yep. When you look at Instagram, I mean, everyone's using WhatsApp and, and so forth, these forms of social media, the internet in it itself, which is a fantastic tool. But who 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 would have second-guessed some of the problems that these things created? Yeah, what you see in the Ottoman side, like I said, once again, it's not just simply halal, haram, and mubah. It's the issue of what are the consequences going forward. And the reason why that forecasting and that foreshadowing is necessary is some way, in some ways, our job is not simply about halal and haram, but trying to safeguard the community and trying to strip the sort of like 
aspects away from the tech so that it can be quite a lot more indigenous to our culture tradition. So, I mean, you're saying that, okay, the Ottomans, you know, there were some, there were some specific reasons uh, related mm. to the technicalities of uh, the Arabic script uh, mm. in which text was also written that yeah. maybe sort of impeded the um, swift adoption of mm. uh, print technology. But when it, when, it, when, it, when it was absolutely required, it, it did get, it, 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 did, yeah. it did get adopted. But, I mean, if we step back from the specific mm. uh, issue of print, uh, mm. And the technologies related to print, and we mm. look at the issue of technological advancement in general, mm. and maybe we throw into that, uh, you could say, um, scientific advancement, military mm. advancement, uh, and we're we're looking because we're we're trying to get a picture of this of, the, of the, this kind of final yeah. Ottoman century and, and compare it relatively with uh, the rest of global history and seeing what happened mm. with the Ottomans, it, you know. Is it wrong to say, to think that this is actually a period of decline? Um, you know, in the past, often you've had historians who have written about the Ottoman Empire, Western historians, Orientalists, mm. and, uh, you know, from the Muslim world, who spoke about the last couple of centuries of the Ottoman Empire mm. as a period of decline. Uh, in the yeah. West, you've got this notion of um, the sick man of Europe, which perhaps, again, you can explain a little bit more about. Um, my own tech is causing me problems here, so um, you know, in terms of tech, I've got a good, a good handle on that. So people see funny, weird face. It's my phone, which is distracting me, which I didn't sure. deal with properly. Too um, many, too many fans on Instagram. Oh no, no, just not knowing how to switch the the, 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 uh, the notifications properly. So yeah. Um, yeah, so so again, just recapping that yeah, whole yeah. idea of you know, is it was this period of decline? You know, did they not manage to keep up with uh, European advancement? Was it sure. the sick man of Europe? You know, what are your thoughts on yeah. on, on that? Um, so, firstly, like the decline paradigm, the argument is not here. Do you want to explain a little bit more, perhaps, what the decline paradigm yeah. is, so and then is, go into some... yeah, sure. So the, there, there is this um, idea that the Ottomans are on this long, gradual decline and. Um, in, in in regards to um, cultural decline, intellectual decline, or specifically, but military decline in terms of landmass and so forth, and the the nation state, the emergence of the nation state is the natural consequence of the collapse of this, you know, decadent empire which can no longer hold together the the various, um, you know areas of its reign and so this is an indication of that the ottomans are not the only ones who get that treatment the whole of islamic history gets that treatment in regards to the 19th century but the reason why ottoman historians have sort of challenged that is they're arguing that one of the key cornerstone ideas of the decline paradigm is the inevitability of the nation state they're not talking about whether the ottomans were struggling or not or whether the ottomans had challenges or not that's not the point they're making the point is is that the nation state was not inevitable the nation state is a direct consequence of World War One, And in fact, the Ottomans had closed the gap very quickly. And I'll give you some examples of other states that don't have that narrative. So the Germans and the Ottomans are on the same side of the wall. And the Germans don't have a narrative of decline. The Germans just have a narrative of let's get on with it. But the Ottomans have a narrative of decline. The British who lose their empire in World War Two once again, don't get this narrative of decline. Now do the Russians. The Austrians also collapsed in World War One, so there's multiple empires that collapse, but the Ottomans are the only ones so, who have this narrative of decline. Why? Why is the the the, the rise of nation states an inevitable result of the world wars? Well, the idea is is that the empire, the way that the Islamic empire was functioning in a changing world order, was just not um, it was not feasible anymore, and that's because Islam 
in terms of its political sort of like uh, disposition was not feasible for that sort of worldview at the time. And so the nation state was just going to be the natural outcome of that. That's the idea. And so this is why the nation state's coming to being. But most Ottoman historians look at it and say, World War One is an exceptional, unique moment in, in human history in which it creates a, a moment of chaos which can can be easily rivaled the Mongol invasion, if not worse. Nothing is it's unprecedented in many ways in that sense. And then the consequence of World War One is World War Two, mm. and so you have these domino effects in that sense. But in terms of tech, the point I was trying to make about tech was, is that the way the reason why some of the European empires, in particular, were ahead in the Ottomans in terms of tech was finances, and then what the tech was designed for. So the Ottomans couldn't compete on a financial level with the Western Europeans because they were using colonialism as a way of making money. But the Ottoman, Islam would not permit the Ottomans to do that, and it wouldn't permit them to do that to their own citizens. So Mahmoud II, in 1808 until 1839, attempts to try to what we call autocratic modern, or be an autocratic modernizer because he couldn't find a way of modernizing the domains because people would just not listen because Islam wouldn't allow that level of violence to be inflicted on people as a way of bringing them together, basically. Whereas the British were just going to India and just telling people to, to shove it. And so when you see how the British were using their resources, it gave them a heads up that the Muslims were struggling with because the Muslims would have to use similar tactics. So the tactics the French and the British were using to get finances had already put the Ottomans behind in that sense. And then the technology that the British and the French and the, and the other European states were creating were creating deliberately to move resources quickly from A to B. So right. trains were not designed to move somebody from A to B because they want to go on holiday. Trains were designed to move gold. Extract trains were resources. designed to yeah. exact resources, exactly. Where the Ottomans create the trains, they're, they're moving the people from Hajj. Right. So they have a very different understanding of that. So it, it, the, the challenge was twofold. One was, and the third point was the Ottomans just didn't have the, the human manpower. In World War One, the British were using soldiers from India, soldiers from Australia, soldiers from New Zealand. The Ottomans had their lot in the empire. They didn't have the human capital to be able to compete on a war of that scale. They just didn't have the population to do it. Um, right, okay. Um, interesting. So, I mean, I think, I, you know, obviously one big uh, point there to kind of perhaps pick up on is the, the First World War and how that mm. plays. Uh, the, the, maybe dig a little bit deeper in, in that. But mm. before we, we, we get into that, so I just want to take up this thing about finance and, uh, and money. So that's interesting. You're saying that one of the reasons that the... Um, the Ottoman Empire failed to, or, or could not fail, perhaps is maybe the wrong word, didn't manage mm. to keep up uh, mm. with kind of advances in, in uh, Western Europe was because of the, the, the disparity in terms of economic power. Yeah. Um, and you're saying that that economic power and wealth um, um, is largely in, in the European capitals and European nation states was derived from, from colonialism. Which, mm. which kind of makes sense, but I mean, I, I guess the question in, uh, sort of jumps into my head is, well, what about the the wealth that the Ottomans were losing, um, the economic capacity they had? They were losing by failing to hold on to um, their territory. Because right through the, even before we get into the 19th century, uh, in the 18th century, there is this, you know, slow uh, disintegration, yeah. if you want, or dismemberment of the Ottoman Empire. It, yeah. It's slowly receding, especially in the in the Balkan, southeast, uh, yeah. southeastern Europe. And that must have a financial impact on the kind of the Ottoman 
Yeah, it has an impact on two points. The first point is is obviously you're losing landmass, mass, so you're losing a particular area which you could use in terms of your economic sort of like policies. But the second problem, which is a bigger problem, is that you need to centralize a military. So we call this the paradox of war, which is the more you're in war, the more um, adept you become at fighting wars because you're in, in the game all the time. Right. In the 18th century, the Ottomans are in peacetime. They, they're not in war, whereas the French and the British, especially in the Napoleonic Wars they, and the French and the Russians, they're in this continual cycle of war, which at the time the Ottomans thought would ravage the Europeans because it was that aggressive. But what it did is it, it sort of um, created a particular paradox in which they were in these continual wars, but then they were creating new weaponry as a way of facilitating these wars, and they were becoming far more efficient right. to try to create what they were called professional armies. So the first creation of professional armies was the issue. The Ottomans didn't have professional armies. What the Ottomans used on that their giant landmass was locals in a particular local area would safeguard the interests of that area because it's very difficult to get soldiers from Istanbul to go fight in Algeria, for example. Mm. So what you'd have is the Algerians safeguarding themselves. What they realized after the Napoleonic Wars was that was just not possible, that they now needed a centralized uh, unit could be that was able to compete with the Europeans. Mm. And they had a larger landmass. So they had a lot of borders to cover, where the Europeans were not concerned about the, the covering of their own borders. They were more interested in colonizing other nations. So the Ottomans now needed funding and money to be able to um, sort of like improve their military, to be able to defend the domains. They were a very different empire compared to the Europeans. And so they had different problems in regards to dealing with that uh, change that was taking place. And that was a key turning point for them. And so what they started to do was try to pump money into the military. But by doing that, people get upset. So right. why are we paying the funds for this? You know, this is just not feasible for us. And Muslims were being taxed aggressively as a way of trying to fix that and remedy that. In the end, they just couldn't find the funds to do it. They borrowed the funds from the European as a way of trying to close that gap. And that was a problem for them. What they couldn't do in essence, and Islam probably would never have allowed this, was capitalism. The Ottomans could never have conceived capitalism. It could never have come from the Ottoman mindset. Capitalism was a European construction, a Western European construction that comes out of the colonial mindset. The Ottomans don't play ball with capitalism for a while. Explain and, a little bit more about that, because that, that seems quite an interesting uh, idea. Do we not? I mean, you have you have private property in the Ottoman Empire. You have, I mean, you know, for people who don't, do you want to explain yeah. a little bit more about so, what exactly what 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 Western capitalism is, is and why you don't find that in Ottoman Empire and well, it's it's very limited for people in the Ottoman Empire to have private property. Actually, you have to belong to a particular group or class. Predominantly, ownership of land and and the competition for for for, for like products and so forth was not there. You wouldn't have like the East India Company, for example. The Ottoman equivalent of the East India Company just didn't exist. So no private because, wealth, or where did people live? I mean, private wealth belonged in the hands of the very few. But even now, for the first time, military men were being paid to go to war. Right. This was a new phenomenon because the idea of booty to be taken in the war battlefield was just not. It's just not sufficient anymore because of the numbers that we're talking about in regards to the sort of like payroll that Western European soldiers have in comparison. You just can not keep up with that. And the facilities that were required for this new form of weaponry, the type of money and resources you needed for that type of weaponry was phenomenal. And the Ottomans just, they had no trading partners because most of the Muslim world was colonized. Where right. could they, who could they trade with? Yeah. So the only trading that could take place was internal. And then when the, in eight what we talk about the 
uh, Mahmud II period, when Mahmud is trying to aggressively centralize the empire, Mehmed Ali Pasha of Egypt, who's the governor of Egypt, kicks off because he knows the consequences of that is that for he's going to be removed from power. And so you have this internal civil war between the Sultan and the governor, the most powerful governor in the Muslim world. And it nearly cripples the empire because of, as a result of that. So Mahmoud was in a bit of a lose-lose situation. And that, you don't I mean, centralize, you get right. screwed by the Europeans. You centralize and people internally are not happy. Right. But they didn't have time to be patient. And yeah. that was just the nature of it. So, I mean, you talk about this this clash between um, uh, Mahmoud, uh, sorry, yeah, Mahmoud II and uh, Mahmoud Ali Pasha in Egypt. Mm. Doesn't that, that that kind of brings us into this uh, this other theme about uh, European Western European or great power intervention and meddling right. Right. Um, in the Ottoman Empire? Because mm-hmm. um, you know, obviously, they the great powers kind of then get involved in in, in that conflict right. and kind of try to pull them apart because they don't want That's Muhammad right. Ali to effectively take over That's the right. empire. You even have the empire. Uh, as you'll be able to explain much better kind of actually calling on the Russians to kind of almost yeah. save them who'd been just just uh, very shortly before actually their principal mm-hmm. foe how much uh, to, to what extent was European inter- interference, European imperialism the kind of imperialism that the Ottomans didn't get into, how much was, was that? Because the Ottoman Empire it's on the Ottoman Empire uh, the heartland of the Ottoman Empire uh, you know sort of Anatolian heartland never gets uh, colonized but you know to what extent or or you know again you you know you can explain more there what it, you know what it, to what extent then is is european colonialism imperialism meddling in the affairs of the ottoman empire to what extent is that critical in uh you know what happens to the ottomans so i also have a technical difficulty let me just grab my cat because he's very strange the height of technical problems the height of technical problems is this oh all right i see it's a feline problem it is a feline (laughs) so the the cats find it very strange and i'm talking to myself in the house Um, she's like are you feeling all right bro (laughs) (laughs) um so can you repeat that question? Yeah, again? so I mean, I've, I've kind of rambled on for too long, really, basically. No, Just uh, sure. the the impact of um, European imperialism and you know yeah. meddling on the on the Ottoman Empire. So I mean, yeah, this is a, a fascinating point, which is when the Europeans are competing with themselves w- with each other as a way of trying to colonize the world. Um, the Ottoman state was not um, exempt from that in reality and in that sense the ottomans are now in a very tricky tricky situation and you can see the encroachment that's taken place in ottoman lands and what the ottomans are trying to do to some degree is buy themselves time i mean the 19th century becomes a century of um coalition right right? and the europeans create coalitions amongst themselves but the ottomans have very few partners that they can create coalitions with so they, they're like a lame duck just sitting there as the Russians, the British, the Germans, the French, and so on are competing with themselves and creating, um, you know, relationships with each other as a way of trying to to bring the, the, the rope in. Now, Sultan Abdul Hamid II was fantastic in the way that he sort of pitted the European powers off against each other in the hope that he could buy himself more time, in the hope that the Ottoman Empire would, would go through a different situation in the future. That didn't materialize. And then what happens is you see the young Turks who say, you know what, we're just going to go all out and just take on the Europeans. Like, we're, we're, we're going to risk it. And, and they went after it. And then now hindsight's a wonderful thing because people say that's a mistake. But they actually 
took a huge gamble of saying all those lands that we lost, for example, Egypt and so forth in World War One, we're going to go for it and try and take it back. Um, but they didn't have the imagination that this war was going to carry on for the the time that it carried on for. Yeah. But for sure, the, the the imperial encroachment was a huge issue and it was a problem for the Ottomans. Okay, interesting. Um, so uh, you've already kind of touched on on uh you know at a few points through the through the mm. conversation already about these attempts to reform um mm. you've mentioned uh, uh sultan mahmud the uh, second uh trying to rapidly uh, uh bring in some of these reforms and immediately after him we get this very famous period of Ottoman yeah. history, um, the, the the so-called Tanzimat. You could, you know, mm. first I'm sure it'd be great if you could explain what that means, and then uh, you know maybe some of the questions that often get um, the, the thrown up with regards to it were the Tanzimat, the introduction of European laws, were the Tanzi, mm. were the Tanzimat a process of a, either a culmination or perhaps the beginning of a process of secularization of the Ottoman uh, legal sphere, and was that. Uh, uh, essentially the abandoning of Islam um, mm. and really actually that's the reason why the Ottomans uh, because they abandoned Islam they left Islam they went secular they went Western yeah. European um, so again I've kind of packaged a whole bunch sure. of things in so you know when I have a crack at, at, at that for the so the, Tanz- the Tanzimat reforms technically begin before Mahmoud II it happens so we'll go back in time. So um, in 1774, the Ottomans lose the Crimea, which is interesting because today when we think of the Crimea, we're thinking of Russia and Ukraine. Yeah. But the Crimea was in the hands of the Ottomans. That was the Muslim area, right? And so Sultan Abdul Hamid I, in his reign, they lose the Crimea. And then his son, Selim III, um, you know, they recognize that there needs to be some form of military reform. And then we get Mahmoud II, who comes after Selim III, who then abolishes the Janissaries. Uh, brings in a new military order and then recognizes that they need institutions and a bureaucracy that can facilitate this new centralized modern empire to some degree. But in order to do that, you need to create a bureaucracy that was um, efficient in languages, that um, facilitated a new form of education. Um, and because of international law and the emergence of international law, there was a need now to um, facilitate that language as a way of creating new legal uh, systems and spheres. So you start to see the emergence of a what people would call a parallel legal system, but it wasn't actually. It was an Islamic system, but it, it was in regards to do with things that were not necessarily um, within the Sharia writ. So these are civil matters, civil courts, usually to do with... Um, trade and so on and what they were doing is they were using laws from orf itself and what's intriguing here is a lot of um, contemporary ottoman historians um, make the argument that this is not simply this is not a period of secularization but a contestation of further islamization of the secular but the introduction of, of something new that's coming into the domains so what you see is a heavy emphasis on the caliphate of the 19th century, which was unprecedented in Ottoman history, the idea of emphasizing the centrality of the caliphate um, to a global Muslim audience. It hadn't happened before. And the Ottomans were now speaking in this way. Um, Ismail Kara talks about the Islamization of the constitution. I was at a conference the other day where another uh, Turkish scholar was talking about the Islamization of international law regarding the Ottomans. 
And this isn't mm. this shouldn't be too shocking for us, and I'll tell you why. It wasn't until World War Two that things really changed. Prior to World War Two, the British were administering Sharia courts in, in, in India. The Russians were administering some sort of Sharia courts in their domains in the Crimea, the French in Algeria, the Austrians in Bosnia, and the Ottomans in the Ottoman domains. And so the language of the Sharia was it would have been possible to have the language of the Sharia in international law because there was no uniformity regarding international law. There was what we would call international laws, many types, right? right? It's only after World War II where everything gets obliterated, you have the nation states, that Islam is no longer a question regarding the international question. Now, how could this, how could this have been possible? Because the Ottomans existed. The fact that the Ottomans existed and that Muslims around the world were still looking at the Ottoman reforms as a form of uh, way of replicating that the British recognized that to some degree this is going to have to be facilitated for. I'll give you an example. In the southern state of Johor Bahru in Malaysia, they take on the Ottoman Majelle and they have a constitution which is not like the Ottoman constitution, but they take Islamic constitutionalism on board. For them, the process is an Islamization of law. Right. So they're not looking at it as a form of secularization. They're seeing it as the Ottomans are Islamizing secular forms and we need to replicate that. So it all comes down to how people have packaged the narrative. And because the narrative of secularization has been so efficient, you, you sort of like, Islam is in some ways, what I've learned in terms of Ottoman, Islam is like the elephant in the room. It's there, but it's not really there. Right. So if you look at the early Ottomans, they're like pagans who didn't know what they were doing. And then, you know, you have the conquest of Istanbul, but these are just Christian traditions. And then you have, you know, Suleiman and Selim, but they're not really caliphs. And then you have like the decline period where nobody knows what they're doing. And then the 19th century is a secularization and then a nation state. And what you realize is where's the Islam? There's just no Islam here. And uh, yeah. what you realize, what you learn is Ottoman studies and Islamic studies to a certain degree. Are what, it's a Western enterprise. It's not something that, that, that emerges in our seminaries. It's something you find in Western universities. And it comes out of an Orientalist tradition. So in that sense, even though there has been some sort of um, attempt to address Orientalism, the, the liberal voice in Ottoman studies in particular is still very strong. And so it... What is that liberal few, voice? Well, the idea that Islam's presence is not really Islam's presence, you know, the idea right. of Islamic exceptionalism in any shape or form is, is heavily critiqued within the academia world in that sense. So, you, you you know, you try to find a way of peace, and you have to make the argument, okay, this is an Islamic empire, but you know, that, and so forth. So you have to try to to make adjustments to that. But um, for Muslims then, when they're reading these works in the books, they'll say, of course, this makes sense. Of course it does. Look how Islamic were they? Because they themselves, a lot of the narratives that come out of Muslim countries, unfortunately, mm. came out of that nation state period right. in which they had to present the Ottomans as a decadent past. And so it coincides for different reasons, but then it consolidates the position. And it's the, the light bulb moment to say, of course, that, that just makes sense. And it's only now a lot of revisionist Muslim historians are looking at that and saying, hang on a minute, you know, rather than we know the outcome, we know what happened, and because yeah. it collapsed, we now look at decline. Why don't we just see what was going on? Yeah. And they're going into it and saying, hang on a minute, this is a bit more complicated. So, for example, Sami Ayyub, he looks at the Majelle, and the Majelle has been presented in Ottoman studies as a secularization. Yeah. And yet Sami is saying, no, this is from the Hanafi tradition. Right. And this was very consistent to my time in Syria, where Hanafi ulama was saying it was from the Hanafi tradition. Yeah. And so on. So you're starting to see this, this sort of 
movement and many ulama from so Syria can will you come into what Turkey. Yeah, yeah, good question, <laughs> Yeah, so the majalla is a form of codification of civil law, which was put into a I mean, I know, form. obviously, but <laughs> yeah. I'm saying for the, no. for the viewers at home. No, no, I appreciate it, bro. Thanks. Sometimes I can become a bit of a geekazoid. So um, it, one of the interesting things the printed press did, and, and Khal Fahmi makes this argument, that is this really a contestation between secularism and Islam, or is this a contestation between the written form and the oral form? Mm. So what happens is that the Majelle is a form of codification, codification of civil laws, which are dealing with matters which are new to the changing conditions in regards to Muamalat. They hadn't existed before the 19th century. So there's new forms and ways of training, trading, sorry, which are very consistent in European societies and that are now starting to come into the Ottoman Empire. And so what they do is they create a primer that can be used by anyone, Muslim or non, where they can just open it up, go down the page, say 34, and then just give a ruling on it. And so some people argued that actually that takes away the agency of the judge. But in reality, because of the way the bureaucracy was was moving into yeah. this was like designed as a way of a dummies booklet that can be used for regular people now what's interesting now and i'll tell you a really funny story is when i was in tokyo i had japanese academics who have taken 10 years to translate the majelle from arabic to, to japanese and when i was sitting with them in their drafting committees they were just they just kept saying this is so islamic this doesn't exist in japan this is so islamic this is not like western law mm. so they would recognize him that the language of the Majelle was still very Islamic, right? Yeah. Um, but you know, it it became part of a broader narrative of codification, and in the broader narrative, that codification was a reflection of secularization. Um, but in actuality, something else was happening. Right. I mean, so you, you've made this point that in in essence, what was going on with these reforms and with these um, uh, mm. uh, essentially also codification of of islamic law uh, uh and other laws uh which weren't sort of within the purview strictly of of, of the sharia uh uh in, in this kind of strictest definition of it mm. um that there was no clash um but i i i guess one one of the the questions that you, um that again sometimes you see put out there and it, it picks up on some other threads is the um, mm. How the non-Muslim communities were were were, were uh, dealt with in the Ottoman Empire. So you know, on the one side, again, um, for those watching and listening, um, the Ottoman Empire is often uh, hailed or held up as an example of um, uh, one of the few empires that was extremely successful in in managing to uh, rule over or, or, or keep a successful you know running state with all these multiple different faith systems and ethnicities uh but but then but then the story also goes on to say that in the 19th century that starts to collapse under the pressure of nationalism which is kind of the, right. the way i want to lead the question right. area too so you know sort of start thinking about or start you know to get you to start you know start yeah. speaking about what was the problem of nationalism how did the ottomans manage that the idea that well one of the things that they did was to bring in this reform where they um uh, actually changed the old dynamic between muslim and non-muslim mm. uh in terms of trying to actually now level out the way yeah. that the, the state treated uh, uh, treated them uh, and then the, I guess again that comes you can tie it back to this idea about a law rather than being one law there being international laws in the plural mm. the Ottomans uh, had this millet system 
yeah. where they had you know uh, side by side you know a Jewish community living mm. and, and and judging and 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 working within its own legal framework and Orthodox Christian and and, and so on and so forth. Mm. Yeah. So how does that all how does that all come come together? A few words, okay. and that would be really so. Good. So for Dr. Salman, the millet system is a <laughs> is a system. I'm <laughs> is a system where each community, each religious community, was had a a way of not governing itself, but had a set of uh, structures where they could have laws and and so forth, where they could go to these internal sort of like mechanisms to um, have law practice on them. And if they were not satisfied by the laws of their own community, then they could go to the Sharia courts or the Ottoman Empire and get a second opinion and be addressed by the Sharia court. So they had this dual system that was operating side by side. Um, and often a lot of people make this argument that on many occasions, non-Muslims actually went to the Sharia courts over their own legal courts or their own religion and so forth. Now, by the 19th century, the state needs to streamline this. It's not feasible to be able to have a centralized bureaucratic state and have small communities um, going to their own communities. The Ottomans, or what we would see is, is that the state in of itself is becoming far more intrusive in the lives of the regular citizen who's becoming a subject to a citizen. And so what the Ottomans did is they created a law for all. It's like just no more differentiation between the different peoples. You've got a Sharia law, but then you've got this legal structure, which is uh, coming from the Ottoman domains, and everybody can just go to these courts and they would be settled in, in that context. In fairness, that's only one side of the story. There was still local customary customary practices that people were doing in various parts of the Ottoman domains. Because you've got to remember, this is still a very nomadic, there are long, large stretches of nomadic areas in the Ottoman areas where people were just still practicing what they felt was necessary in that sense. But the idea is to try to create a legal system under the banner of equality where the law was supreme. And this is becoming a far more legal state in which now everybody is being treated equally in the eyes of the law. Um, and in that sense, the, you can start to see the disintegration of the millet system into a more homogenous system. Legal monism. Which, right. And the thing is, is you, you start to get the, the a consequence of that is Ottomanism, mm. right? The idea is now that we are all one Ottoman subject, we are all Ottoman subjects of the same domains, we have the same laws, we have the same identity, and so forth. We only differ on religion, but that's um, a separate issue. And that is the counter-nationalism because of the emergence of nationalism in the nation states in certain parts of, of the Balkans in particular. Um, and so Ottomanism, some, it was supposed to function something similar to what we have in the United States of America, actually, in terms of like this large empire that has many different states, but we're all living under this rubric, which is this huge empire, and each province has its own way of not own way, but it has some level of independence in the way that it's govern, governing and so forth. Um, but that was very difficult to materialize. Now, a lot of people make the argument, which is what came first, the nation state or nationalism? And this is still a debate within Ottoman historians, mm. with some historians and technocrats and thinkers saying, you you create the nation state first, and then you create a national narrative that fits that nation state. So you define the borders. And then you create a, a narrative of those borders. Whereas other people say there was an emergence of a nationalistic thinking and feeling and, and, and sentiment, and that moved, that created the creation of these nation states. And this is still heavily contested amongst many historians. The even more interesting thing is whether Muslims believed in nationalism. And the idea is of Arabism and Turkism 
in particular is, are two things that are posited forwards. What we see is that up until World War One, Muslims are not pushing for nationalism. This is very consistent. So Arabism is not a call for Arabic Arab nationalism. It's actually a form of cultural um, independence. What the Arabs are concerned about is that because of the centralizing efforts of the Ottoman center, that they're going to lose their cultural integrity. And in the 19th century, we see what we call the Nahda, which is this enlightenment period of both. What we see in the 19th century, as I said before, is Arabic, Ottoman Turkish, and various other languages, where there is a renaissance taking place in that sense, in terms of cultural recognition. And so what Arabs were saying in particular is that we don't want to be amalgamated and being swallowed up, swallowed up by mm. Turkism, and we want to have some sort of cultural independence. And what they are arguing for was not a collapse of the empire, but in fact what they were asking for was semi-autonomy, to have more freedom in that sense. So this was a debate more about centralization and decentralization than it was about Turkifying everyone. Because even the Ottomans didn't have the idea of Turkifying everyone. That was just not feasible. They wanted to be a multi-ethnic empire. That's what Ottomanism was. But they, what they wanted was people in the in the bureaucracy to learn Turkish. And that made some Arab thinkers very nervous because they were saying, you know, if you're going to do that, the consequences of that are is that we're going to lose our kids to the bureaucracy and we're going to lose our kids as Arabs. And so, you know, they were highlighting this point. Historians have taken that as a precursor to suggest that there was a form of Arab nationalism taking place in the beginning. But the evidence doesn't pro it doesn't just it doesn't push to that. And even when we look at the Albanians, the Albanians only create their own nation states after the collapse of the Ottomans. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Really interesting. I mean, so I mean, I guess picking up on uh, some of the ideas you, you said this. Uh, uh, one is just perhaps just to summarize what you said there. Do you, I mean? Do you think the Ottomans could have done anything differently to? cope with the challenge of nationalism so in some ways perhaps it seemed that they didn't manage to um you know they tried ottomanism uh, yeah. which is a, a really good analogy I've, I've i've not heard before between um but obvious one when you think about it between american and the, the american ideal and how yeah. you know different different people from different nations who immigrate to america all yeah try to and even of different faiths ultimately sort mm -hmm. of tie themselves together under this american ideal that the the ottomans sought to do that with the disparate uh nations races and mm. and, and and religions uh time of, but it, it it seems to fail and then you mm. spoke about this kind of what's often seen to be a shift to Turkism from Ottomanism, mm. but yeah. you're saying really it was more a mode of of centralization rather than kind of an ideological shift to promoting yeah. Turkic sort of you know supremacy. Um, Don't get me wrong; there are many academics who still hold the position that, the, especially the Arab world, that the uh, the Turks were pushing for a Turkish, a sort of like Turkism. But Hasan Kayala, who's a very good academic, and I liked his work in particular, he makes the argument that when you look at other sort of thinkers, what they were hoping. So Yusuf Akshara is one of the thinkers who talks about this, who comes from Russia, actually. And he makes the argument that maybe Turkism is a better um, ideal to save the empire by, by getting the empire to become part of the Turkic peoples of the Russian bloc. And by doing that, what they could do is they could emphasize the Islam that's missing in the Turkic peoples in the Russian bloc, making the Ottoman Empire stronger. So we, we, we see a very different conceptualization of what they mean by Turkism. They're not trying to turn Arabs into Turks. Yeah. What they're doing is they're trying to extend their Turkishness 
to the other Turkish-speaking world as a way of becoming attached to that. Because Yusuf Akçura in particular, and the thinkers like Ziya Kokalp and so forth, who were sort of thinkers of Turkishness in that sense, not Turkish nationalism, they felt that um, you know this is a part of their identity in which um, Islam is not Islam as a political sort of like instrument, if you could call it that, is not working to unify the Ummah. And so what we can do is we can turn to this Turkishness and that could work and then we could implant Islam into them. It's a very fascinating way that they were trying to conceptualize this. Now, when the Turkish Republic is formed, the Turkish Republic is not interested in any of this stuff, right? It's just like interested in the borders of its state and it's like we're out and right. it moves towards Kemalism in that sense. Um, right. So, I mean, I, we're probably not going to touch on Kemalism tonight, mm. uh, but um, I, I, there's perhaps, in terms of these these isms or these, in, these uh, mm. uh, you, you could say intellectual trends, uh, ideological shifts uh, in terms mm. of trying to, uh, trying to kind of create a cohesive state, uh, uh, the, uh, perhaps the one that hasn't been um, touched on so far. So we've had kind of this, in, this, discussion about what ottomanism is and turkism mm. is pan-islamism uh, mm. what was the function of pan what, what does pan-islamism mean you often get it heard it hearing it bandied about in terms of yeah. the late ottoman empire and particularly with regards to one figure which would be good for you to pick up a bit more so i mean may, maybe you could now sort of if you could say something about pan-islamism and the, the sultan who's who's often you know um mm. you know tied together with that name sultan yeah. Hamid the second so what's interesting here is that the Ottomans and Muslims in general don't use the term pan-Islamism. They use the term ittihad islam What, what, what does pan-Islamism mean for those who yeah. use it? What are they trying to say? So, so this is the interesting thing. So what I was about to say is they use the term ittihad islam which is Muslim unity or Islamic unity, right? Mm. But pan-Islamism is the British gaze on Muslim activism as a way of trying to use the language of Islam as a way of unifying Muslims around the world, not only within the Ottoman domains, but outside the Ottoman domains. And for that, it made the British very nervous. So they coined this phenomenon as a way of describing this phenomenon. And Abdul Hamid II, who was the Sultan from 1876 until 1909, he was very effective in making the case of him being the caliph. And as a caliph, he was the global caliph. And that all Muslims from around the world should turn to him mm. as the symbol of unifying them so that that hierarchy was necessary in that sense right um and that made the british very nervous because abdul hamid was very efficient in doing that now what's intriguing here is for example is that a lot of people talk about the, the failure of the jihad fatwa for example which was 1914 but the shia in iran and in the ottoman domains agreed in joining the ottomans in this call of ittihad islam as a way of keeping out the british and they were very aggressive in their support towards the ottomans to stop the british so to some degree, when we look at the, the call for Islamic unity, it wasn't only a call for Islamic unity in regards to Sunni Muslims. This was a call for all Muslims as a way of trying to stop the encroachment of the colonial imperial powers. And um, it's very intriguing that you will see like the Khilafat Committee in India, the huge movement. It's not just Sunni Muslims in that movement either. And so what you start to see is that this call of Muslim unity, to some degree, has the British nervous. It's like, what is it actualizing? Now, why am I explaining this? I'll tell you why. Benedict Anderson, who talks about nationalism in particular, he says the print and press facilitates the emergence of nationalism with an official national language, and in some ways people can actualize the, the imagination of nationalism. What he doesn't talk about is that the unique thing about Ittihad al-Islam 
course, the printed press also facilitated the actualization of Muslim unity in a way that it hadn't done before. Right. It really charged up Muslims, which was very a unique phenomena. And Muslim elites, for the first time, were able to encourage other Muslims that we need to pull together. Um, so Abdul Hamid was seen as the symbol of that. And that but carried on into, um, you know, World War One, where the young Turks were also using these symbols um, in this way. I mean, people would then argue that it had Islam failed in that sense. What was intriguing is pan-Islamism then evolved into Islamism, right? right. And, and this is where the academic endeavor takes place of trying to categorize. And I think as Muslims, maybe we need to think twice about how do we feel about these forms of categorization and these languages that are used um, in, in explaining the Muslim phenomena. I mean, was Abdul Hamid wrong in, in trying to unify Muslims or not? Does the, does the deen give him that permission but to do be, that? Before that point, though, was he, mm. how was he seen or how was, how was the Ottoman Empire seen by Muslims outside of it? Was it actually was it in Ashraf the 19th century? In the 19th century, by and large, the, the Muslim, if you see Sultan Abdul Aziz, uh, who's the Sultan before Abdul Hamid, and Sultan Abdul Majid, and even Mahmoud II, they're already making these calls. It's just that Abdul Hamid is the pinnacle in terms of the. So, in that sense, Abdul Hamid's policies <laughs> are not that different than the Sultans before in the 19th century stretch. What, what the difference is, is that Abdul Hamid is a lot more efficient in his diplomatic policy. So there's a book by a academic, his name is Firozi Yasami. It's called Ottoman Diplomacy. And it talks about Abdul Hamid's policies in particular of how he's used this. And then there's another book called um, The Politicization of Islam by Kamal Karpat. And they talk about these policies that Abdul Hamid is very good at using because they have a better understanding of Muslims in the outside the domains because of the way that information is now being able to come to the center. And so they're able to then pit people off against each other. So one of the examples is, for example, is that the British were annoying Abdul Hamid. So he made going on the Hajj difficult for Muslims in India. And so the Muslims kicked off in India and then the British backed down. Um, and this was one of the policies that people would call as pan-Islamic in that sense. Um, but there were very various other mechanisms. Abdul Hamid gave... He gave money, he gave medals, he gave uh, um, uh, just a lot of aid to Muslims outside the, the Muslim world, I mean, outside the Ottoman domains as a way of creating an imagination that the caliph was necessary, um, and, and so on. Um, so, okay, so that you kind of given us a little bit of, a, of a, an intro to Abdul Hamid and what was going on um, uh, during his reign um, His reign is often seen to come to a close With the second constitutional revolution The Young Turk mm -hmm. revolution mm -hmm. um, You know, who were the Young Turks um, Again Sometimes you, you might find People coming across You know, trying to mm -hmm. deal with some of these Kind of myths, or it, maybe even not myths You might, some people might not believe they're myths And might think they're facts, you know uh, The idea that the Young Turks were part of a conspiracy that actually you know when we're, we're kind of moving we've slowly kind of edged toward yeah. out through the 90s we've actually kind of once we've been talking we've been proceeding through the 19th century we're sort of now in the uh, yeah. uh beginning of the 20th century you can mm -hmm. explain more when this young turk revolution happens but um uh the idea that now actually it's uh, a conspiracy the young turks mm. are often sometimes again linked to uh the the faith community of uh, mm. of Salonika, Thessaloniki, um, mm. and, uh, you know, dare I say it, um, Jewish conspiracy as well. Uh, mm -hmm. And, um, you know, what, what 
what's the truth behind that and um you know what was going on when abdul hamid was removed what's interesting about this period just to take a step back is that there this is an this is a period of an emergence of various different sort of like ideological inclinations we see the emergence of the Naqshbandi movement as, as, as a 19th century phenomenon for example prior to the 19th century the Naqshbandis were not that uh, prominent in the Ottoman domains as they had become in Anatolia and uh, parts of northern Syria in Iraq and, and the Balkans we see the emergence of Salafism we're not talking about the Salafism of today we're talking about the Salafism of Muhammad Abdul Rashid Ridda right. the Qasimi brothers Qawakabi and so forth. We see the emergence of Wahhabism, which is very different from the Salafism of that time, uh, emerging as a as a sort of like different intellectual and ideological sort of like viewpoint of Islam. We see the emergence of Mahdiism in Sudan. You know, the idea that there is a, a Mahdi that emerges in Sudan and all of these sort of like ideological um, currents which have political components to it are, are sort of like critiquing Abdul Hamid and this is why you can see that the call for ittihad islam becomes even more important because there are these various spaces and i think this makes sense to us in terms of muslims because there are muslims of various different denominations and one of the hardest things that we could call for is how do you unify these different muslims of these different intellectual currents in today's day and age well we have real time something that happened in the past and what abdul hamid did is he made the argument or the Ottomans made the argument, it's because they were the caliphate, that that was legitimate, that you sit by that um, 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 authority and you don't rebel against it. The Salafists, by and large, they stuck to that principle. If you see the works of Rashid Radda, he's a, he's a proud Ottomanist. He makes it very clear that he's proud to be an Ottomanist mm -hmm. and so forth. The Naqshbandis are very pro-reform and very pro-Khilafah and they're Sufis and they're pushing the Ottoman idea in that sense. Wahhabism in particular it has the real problem. Actually, it gives the green light of rebellion in some way because it's the first movement that pushes for rebellion. It's the one that says the Ottomans are far, it's shirk, and we're going to go for this. You know, we're just not going to accept it. Intriguing because the irony today is that would never be called for the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia right now. But towards the Ottomans, it was called for, and they were the first ones to call it. Right. And what that did is that 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 puts a a sort of um. It's, it, it puts the seeds of a mindset within the Ottoman domains of the possibility of turning against the Sultan in that sense. And that's not why the Young Turks turned against the Sultan, because there's hosts of Janissary revolts against the Sultan anyway. But what the Young Turks are unhappy about in particular... And these so are who are the Young Turks? Okay, so the Young Turks were different from the Young Ottomans, by the way. So prior to Abdul Hamid, the Young Ottomans were a group of intellectual Muslims, religious Muslims, um, who were um, frustrated with the political system of the Ottoman Empire and they wanted something which was more constitutionally based. So they were making the argument that we want a system of more meshferet, so the shura, a parliamentary system, a constitution and whatnot. They were not successful. Abdul Hamid removes that. The Young Turks who are making the same call are a different type of people. They're military cadres mainly, raised and educated in the schools of Abdul Hamid themselves who are exceptionally frustrated because they feel that the empire is not going anywhere. It's sitting static. It's a lame duck. And Abdul Hamid had, in, had been in power for 30 years. So that frustration, it, it starts to snowball. And then in 1908, they move against Abdul Hamid in the Macedonian provinces. But what's in, important here is in 1906, there was a revolution in Iran, 
1905, there's a revolution in Russia. So this was the zeitgeist at the time, you know. This was something that was taking place, and the young Turks said, we need to move now, yeah. because if we don't, the encroachment by the British and the Russians is going to compromise us. And so they went for revolutionary activity in the Balkan provinces, and the ulama, to some degree, supported them by giving them the green light towards that activity, especially when it had a civilian component to it, and Abdul Hamid had to back down. Um, so, so and, Right. Sorry. Sorry. What did you? It had a a civilian component to it. So initially, one of the arguments that Abdul Hamid makes for the Sheikh al-Islam is that can I crush the rebellion? But once the young Turks get the civilians in the Macedonian provinces involved in it, it becomes difficult for Abdul Hamid to be able to do that because this now has a civilian aspect to it. And the civilians in the Albanian provinces, in particular, are making the argument that we we want the Sharia to be upheld. We have no problems with it with the caliph, but we believe that, a con- or they, will be, they were made to be believe that a constitutional system would save them against the encroachment of the Western powers. And they bought into that. They supported the Young Turks. The Young Turks then rebelled against Abdul Hamid and his hands were tied. And there you go. What, so what about the notion that, uh, um, I, I'm not sure if it was an intentional, you intentionally skirted around it or, or not mm. so... Um, I'm just going to ask it again, and I'll, I'll know mm. whether it was um, the, the, the idea that the young Turks were the types ah, of yes. the Jewish conspiracy. So this is something which is very common amongst Muslims, but we don't actually see that in the evidence itself that this is a Jewish conspiracy. It is true that um, the Zionists, in particular, were continuously pushing for um, a Zionist state, but the other, even the young Turks were very anti-Zionism. They no way were they interested in facilitating the creation of a Zionist state. Um, now, what we learn is a lot of the conspiracies that in the Balkans, there are a lot of Jews there and so forth. And this is some sort of like, um, you know, attempt to do that. But we just don't see any evidence for that. This is something which is is like, you, you see it, Muslims by and large, not Muslims per se, but certain types of Muslims, they want to, they think that this is um, linked to the creation of the Zionist state. But in reality, the young Turks are not involved in this at all in any shape or form. But because... The young Turks are pitted against Sultan Abdul Hamid II, and he's seen as the pious Sultan. It then sort of makes sense to to have this narrative where the the young Turks are moving in this direction. But in reality, um, the young Turk movement is a large umbrella of anyone and everyone, and we have like certified ulama in that initial umbrella um, in that sense. Now, there's another accusation that's aimed at them: it's about Freemasonic activity. Now, this is even more interesting because what we see is we see these Freemasonic lodges which are talking about science and positivism. And what it seems like is members, not only of the Young Turks, but ulama as well, like Ridda and so forth, they would go to these lodges to see what they were talking about. Mm. And so what has happened is people have assumed that because they've gone there, that they are Freemasons. Um, but I, from what I'm seeing from the conversations I've had with people, it seems like they were just... Um, they were just curious about the conversation that was taking place. <laughs> it's not even like Dawa, you know. That I, was I, a speaker's <laughs> corner. <laughs> but you know what? It, that's a very good analogy in some degree, which is that they wanted to see the new ideas that are being spoken of, yeah. especially in, in, in the fields of science and tech, which is something that they are oblivious to. So they wanted to hear what people had to say. And so they were going to these, frequented in these places as a way of hearing these ideas. And it was a place of gathering, but no real official membership as a way of bringing down the empire. We just don't have the evidence for it. So for me, 
the, the two claims are made, but these are more narrative constructions than they are factually based. Now, people in your comments, I'm sure, will bring out all these like things, but when I'm talking about the Ottoman archives or so forth, we just don't see it. I right. mean, it, just to play That's devil's it. advocate here, if, if there yeah, is yeah. a conspiracy, you're not going to exactly find easily find uh, evidence of it. If it's a conspiracy, if they were, if they were careful I mean, about their. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, conspiring. If the, what's interesting here is Greenland's conspiracy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's no evidence. They, it must be true. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, historians so generally well. like they're very thorough in the way that they've gone around looking at all forms of evidence yeah. to try to find, to, to try to entertain this narrative. But it's just not a narrative that is popular yeah. within Ottoman historians. So, um, yeah. Uh, so I mean, so we we've got to the Young Turks, uh, where sort of 1908, as you said, the uh, revolution. Um, it you know there's a big there's a, a really big event on the horizon. Um, mm. We 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 you know you you've kind of scotched the whole um, idea of um, Jewish conspiracy, Freemasonic conspiracy, uh, but one that's much harder to sort of um, uh, just kind of push away uh, and seems you could argue very much is uh lands in the uh at the feet of the young Otto, uh, sorry not the young Ottomans, young turks is the is taking the ottoman empire into the first world war you've already touched yeah. about the first world war why why did the why did the ottoman empire um ally itself with germany why did it why did it uh why did it join the central powers why did it get involved in this conflict which again perhaps you can say more about how heavily how massively it impacted the um uh, the ottoman empire so today if i forget my, I'm, I'm not even looking i think today is the 11th of of, yeah. of, of november so it's almost to stay here it's a big deal yeah. um yeah. I, I think one of the things that perhaps is a bit sad is for muslims we don't we don't even really we're not even aware that there was a separate armistice yeah, yeah. Uh, for the ottoman empire and you know kids go to school here they learn about the treaty of versailles yeah. there was a separate yeah. treaty that dealt with the ottoman empire and the yeah. muslim provinces of the arab lands yeah. uh, all of this uh because the young turks you know there was it the three the three pashas yeah. uh who again I, I i will ask him to explain who that who they are salman don't worry yeah why, why did these guys you know drag the ottoman empire into the war unnecessarily mm. and essentially lead to its collapse and ultimately lead to the fall of the of the sultanate and the caliphate by by, yeah. by extension so when abdul hamid is, is sort of like compromised in terms of the authority and then in 1909 he's removed from power and replaced by his brother mehmet rashad we have what we would call like you could call it a a sort of like um three men in particular um who were um sort of like um Two of them in particular, Talat Pasha and Enver Pasha, were like symbols of the Young Turk Revolution mm-hmm. in that sense. And, and Jamal, not so much, but Jamal climbs up the ranks. And by now, these people, these three men in particular, it is argued, although I would argue that it's a bit of a simplification, but nonetheless, what is presented is that these three men are the three most powerful men who are working in the background um, and have the actual reins of government by World War One. And so Jamal Pasha is the governor of Bilad Sham. Um, Enver is uh, the head of the Ministry of War, and Talat Pasha is the Grand Vizier. And these three men in particular are sort of like orchestrating the Ottoman war effort and become the, the face and the sort of like uh, face of the narrative of the of, of the war in terms of what's taking place in that sense. And um, 
in reality, what we're learning is that the Ottomans wanted to hold a neutral position. They actually knew that going into this war would be catastrophic. They, they had no real intention of going into the war. And they wanted to hold a neutral position as long as they could. But in a world where coalitions were being created, what they realized is that Britain and France just could not be a trusted ally in that sense, especially the British. They just couldn't trust them. So initially they turned to the British, and Jamal is interested in turning to the French in the hope that if we align ourselves with one of these major powers, that it would stop us from getting involved in the war, and it would stop the war in of itself. What they couldn't do was actually stop the momentum that was coming from Russia. So in that sense, they already realized that we're in a bit of a difficult situation, and they couldn't escape that difficult situation. The other problem they have is the Italian um, occupation of Libya, which really hurts the Ottoman really, really badly. Um, a lot of people don't realize this, that a lot of the tactics that Omar Muhtar actually learns, he learns from the guerrilla activity, like Enver Pasha, who goes to Libya, and the Ottomans leave behind weapons and so forth as a way of trying to help the Libyans. The reason why they couldn't continue fighting in Libya is because the Balkan Wars and a year later break out, and that's far more dangerous for the Ottomans because it's on the, uh, on the borderlands of Europe. So the Ottomans had to abandon Libya teach them guerrilla tactics, hope that they would survive the Italians and go to um, the Balkans, and they lose the first Balkan Wars. They then recuperate some of the lands in the second Balkan Wars. And so when World War I happens in 1914, they, their calculation was probably that this is going to be six months to one year to two years max. That was it. And so they sided with the Germans who were all rising power, who were a thorn on the side of uh, the, the European powers. The Japanese in 1905 had defeated the Russians. And so the hope was was the possibility that we could actually give them a bloody nose and, 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 and so on. Now, what they miscalculated, and they didn't realize this, is they thought that the Germans would attack the Russians and the Ottomans would contain the Russians via landmass, and this would just be a war between the Russians and the Germans, and the Ottomans would just be there not allowing Russian advancement. The Germans didn't tell the Ottomans did this, they attacked the French first and totally sought the Ottomans off guard. And by attacking the French, the French had signed a treaty with the British, which is that the British can now get involved in the war. And the British and the French went right after the Ottoman Empire. And now the Ottomans are doing a defensive warfare as a way of trying to save their domains and, and so on. And now the things get really messy because the Ottomans are fighting a war on all fronts with the British and the French, the Russians, and, and the Russians were a humongous enemy. And for the Ottomans, now are kind of stuck, and now they, they make decisions. And what's interesting in a war, though, what's really intriguing, is when you watch the war, it's like watching a football match. You really don't know who's going to win it. <laughs> it feels like 1-0, 1-1, 2-1. It's going backwards and forwards. Mm. It's only after the Germans collapse that the Ottomans have lost the war. It's actually the German capitulation which forces the Ottoman capitulation. In that sense, the Ottomans are willing to continue, and we can see this in the War of Independence, where when the Ottoman Empire collapses, they're still fighting to safeguard the, the Turkish Republic, which is initially they're not fighting for the Turkish Republic. They're still fighting for the Sultanate because that's what they thought they were fighting for um, in that sense. But it was a German capitulation which hurt the Ottomans in that sense. And, the, the you know, the, the British and the French put heavy conditions on the Germans and they did the same to the Ottomans. The consequence of the Germans is they, they, they went again in World War II, whereas what Turkey did is they held a neutral position in World War II. It, it learned from that and said, we're out. Um, in that sense. But the Ottomans, if you read the work of Eugene Rogan and Eric Jan Zurha, you sort of get the feeling that the Ottomans were in a catch-22 situation. They really couldn't get out of the war. What they could have done is minimize the impact of the war. And where the Ottomans mainly felt 
was at the tail end of the war because they really didn't anticipate the war was going to go on for that long. They never expected the rebellion from the Arab provinces to be that aggressive. Yeah. And um, they got hurt by things like malaria. People, large swaths of people were being killed by flu and malaria. And Muslims yeah. were believing that they were being punished by Allah. Like it was, and that sort of like it was demoralizing the troops. So you imagine you're fighting and you're hearing that your wife is being killed by malaria. So it wasn't the fighting effort that was demoralizing the soldiers. It was hearing news from home that our families are being wiped out and so forth. Oh, yeah. And this wasn't only the case in the Ottoman Empire. This happened to British soldiers and British generals were being wiped out by these sicknesses. Yeah. And so the culmination of all of these things really brought the empire to its knees because it wasn't designed for all-out assault in this way. It just didn't have the resources to do oh, with yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, is is uh, I mean, I, you read it's the case that the um, uh, the Ottoman Empire actually performed remarkably well uh, mm -hmm. in the First World War. The expectations were given uh, in the lead up to the First World War with the yeah, Balkan yeah. Wars. Um, none of the European powers really that interested in in signing yeah. up the Ottomans onto their team, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, is they were almost like a liability, but the Ottomans yeah. outperformed. Uh, expectations yeah. massively oh. by many factors. Gallipoli, yeah, yeah, they yeah. bloodied the. I mean, more than yeah. bloodied the British nose, the British yeah, nose, yeah. Uh, noses, and um, uh, they had to. Unlike you know France, there's one front, one mm -hmm. front, the Western Front, Russia, there's just the Eastern Front. Yeah. Okay, Germany's yeah. fighting on two fronts, but yeah. I think the Ottomans they count four, five, five fronts. The Ottomans yeah, have yeah. to fight on. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting as well is if you read the German accounts, and I have a friend who's a historian from Germany, and he says that the German accounts, when they look at the Ottoman soldiers, they look at some of them who are peasants, and they just go, what are these guys going to do? And then turn around and say, these guys were far more vociferous and aggressive in the battlefield than we were, and we had weaponry, and they were just going out there, um, because in the end, the Ottomans just ran out of men, you know, trained men who could fight the war, because that wasn't the anticipation, but what was intriguing is the call for Islam was really strong in Muslims, and they were they just kept going. Um, in the end, that's that sentiment is what safeguarded the Republic today. I mean, it was that emotion and that sentiment which safeguards the creation of the Turkish Republic. Mm. Um, but the Ottomans had closed the gap, from what I read in Shukru Hanwal as well. The Ottomans had technologically closed the gap in World War One as well in terms right. of weaponry. Okay, so I mean, just before we 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 move on to that final phase, which is the um, uh, you know, the, the War of Independence, the post Sevres uh, uh, clash. Uh, just two two things really. Mm -hmm. Then first, do you want to just um, uh, speak a little bit more about you mentioned about Islam and how it motivated mm -hmm. uh, the Ottomans, mm -hmm. uh, Ottoman soldiery. What was the what was the function of the the, the, the famous jihad fatwa? Mm. You know, you've got you know for fans of Thirty Nine Steps, you've got John mm. Buchan's uh, Green Mantle novel. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's this you know Scottish British uh, author. And I know all these names. <laughs> you know, um, well, yeah. Thirty Nine Steps, more probably more famous mm. work of his, but you know, Green Mantle is about this kind of yeah. you know world, world uh, Islamic yeah. cons conspiracy, not not conspiracy, but you know, jihad. Mm. Yeah, it is conspiracy, and then the Muslim Muslim people as well rising up in a in a jihad and like kind of throwing off the British mm. imperial yoke and mm. you know panicking uh, mm. uh, the Foreign Office here and in, in Paris and mm. you know what what was what was the the jihad fatwa all about? Was it about trying to get all the Muslims of the world, you know, mm -hmm. rebel into rebel it, or was it about motivating the 
um, you know, the Muslims, the, the Ottoman subjects themselves yeah. within internally within the empire, um, you know. You know, it's interesting. If you look at the, the war of Libya, when the Italians invade the Libyans, the, 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 the narrative is of a jihad effort. Um, but when the wars in the Balkan provinces happen, they don't call it a jihad because it's an internal contestation amongst its own citizens and subjects yeah. in that sense. Yeah. So when the British um, and the Russians and so forth are seen as those who are going to encroach on the Ottoman territory, it fits into the capacity of it being a jihad, which is the caliphate is under siege. Yeah. And so if you actually look at a jihad fatwa, you can see an English version of this, which is very interesting. Um, the Ottomans are very harsh. They they make the, the, the accusation that those who knowingly or unknowingly support those who are against us and fight us, fight the Austrians or fight the Germans, you know, they're going to go to Jahannam. You know, it's it's really harsh in that sense because they're aware that the British are probably going to use soldiers, Muslim soldiers from their various colonies as a way of fighting the Ottomans. And actually Muslims in India initially had made the argument that they did not want to be stationed in Mesopotamia. They made it very clear that, look, Okay, we're stuck and so forth. We just don't station us in the Ottoman Empire. And you see, we see desertions. We see soldiers from India who are going on the other side. Now, the jihad fatwa was supposed to rile up um, the emotions. And this is, one could argue that this was a miscalculation from the Ottomans. That how do you judge public opinion? And how did the, what were the mechanisms they were using? And what was their expectation in hoping? What were Muslims going to do? So in that sense, it wasn't this, you know, like just fire coming from everywhere. But what was intriguing is the jihad fatwa did succeed in some shapes and forms. One of the ways that it succeeded is it did work in regards to the, the um, in Iraq in particular, the Shia populations really got on board with this. And they produced, the, the Shia ulama produced their own fatwa, multiple fatwas going all out to support the Ottoman caliph as as um, to stop British encroachment. In India, the Khilafat Committee was exceptionally successful in mobilization, and the British had to use multiple tactics to try to suppress these sort of things. Pierre Lotte said that we were very nervous in terms of what would happen in Algeria. And what's intriguing is it sets in motion a sentiment. So even after the Ottoman Empire collapses, the sentiment of resistance is still now internalized in the Muslim, and that doesn't leave them. Mm. And that uh, feeling and that sentiment um, you can see in the case of the Turkish Republic and the creation of Pakistan, in particular with the, the what was happening in India, yeah. that, that right. just never left Muslims. Yeah. Once the the match was lit, it was there was no going back from that. So, on the one hand, yes, the jihad fatwa failed in its immediate um, impact in terms of what it was, um, ex, what the Ottomans were expecting, and some people say the Germans had um, pressurized the Ottomans to write that. Um, I'm not too sure, to be honest with you. But in the immediate effect, it didn't have the desired effect. And the reason why it didn't have the desired effect is not because people didn't want to fight. It's because you need, where the Ottomans were failing, was rank and file in the war effort itself, yeah. was organization in the war effort and so forth. So in that sense, the jihad fatwa didn't really fail, but how the Ottomans didn't couldn't control Muslims in India. They had no agency in India. Yeah. So how they were just hoping that the Muslims in India could get their act together. The Muslims in Afghanistan could get their act together, but they didn't have any way of, of, of influencing that. So in that sense, they overreached, I guess. They pushed above their weight a little bit. But an interesting thing was, was the sentiment remained and the emotion remained. And that created different manifestations later on. Mm, okay, interesting. So, um, you know, we we have, okay, the Ottomans call it jihad, but uh, against kind of, you know, overwhelming odds. 
uh, they they kind of push back, and ultimately, actually, it's the collapse of their of their allies, uh, as you said, yeah. the capitulation of the Germans, uh, that leads to um, ultimately the war coming to an end uh, mm. uh, in favor of the Allied powers. Uh, then the Allied yeah. powers impose. The, you know, there's diktat. Yeah. I don't know what the Turkish word for diktat would be, but you know, there's yeah. the Germans ha- in German history. Diktat is uh, such a sort of a prominent theme that eventually, of course, leads to the Second World War. Mm. Um, I don't know what the Turkish word for diktat would be, but there is a dictated, isn't there? There's a dictated yeah. treaty. What, yeah. what 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 happens with that treaty? What are the implications of that? And then, following on from that, we have um, like, again, like, I guess people. Some some people will know, but again, some of our viewers and listeners won't be aware of the uh, the extent to which uh, the, the the Anatolian heartland itself was essentially parcelled out to the various mm-hmm. European powers, leaving just a tiny rump uh, of yeah. Turkey left. How did um, the Turkish Republic? How how before we even get to the Turkish Republic, mm-hmm. how did the, the Ottoman subjects of the time? How did the the, the Muslims in Anatolia? How mm-hmm. did they fight back? What was their motivation? Were they already yeah. fighting for a republic, or you know, was it in the name of the Sultan? Was it in the name of Islam? Mm-hmm. And I guess finally, how does that to kind of wrap the story up? How does that mm-hmm. that fight for survival? How does that transform into um, you could say the 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 abolishment of the Ottoman state mm-hmm. and uh, and then of course the caliphate as well. Yeah, so one of the interesting things is is that the men from Anatolia, by and large, were the, the larger larger number of groups of people that were fighting in the war effort. That that cannot be denied. That a lot of men from the Anatolian region were actually fighting across the empire and took the heaviest burden of the war effort. That's not to say the Arabs were not fighting. The Arabs were fighting, and there's a there's an academic by the name of Dalhar Cicek. He he's written this book on on the sort of like complexities between the various Arab peoples and tribes. There are many Arab tribes who are fighting on behalf of the Ottomans and so forth. So this misconception, which is that the Arabs betrayed the Ottomans, is it, it, that's not actually the truth of the narrative. I mean, even the Wahhabis by World War One. Uh, holding a neutral position because they're nervous that if the Ottomans win World War One and they rebelled against the Ottomans, the consequences would be harsh on them because of what happened earlier on in 1818. So they hold a neutral position in fairness to them, but a lot of people critique them for a lot of things. But yeah, they're just, they're just watching the game. They only move into the game once the Ottoman state collapses and they they turn against Shalif Hussein right. um, in that sense. Um, but the Anatolian peoples in particular took the larger burden. That is true. And when the Treaty of Sevres which is the Ottoman capitulation to the, you, you know, the, the Allied forces takes place. The, the conditions were very harsh. So sort of like Western Anatolia was given to the Greeks, parts of it given to the Italians, Sykes and Pico had taken place where they'd lost the Arab domains and so forth. And this was an utter humiliation. And Istanbul was occupied. The hope was, was that Istanbul would then not be occupied, but the Straits would be um, neutral um, in, in that sense. And um, the the the, the landmass they had um, of parts of Anatolia and so forth would be accepted, and that was it. And the, we had two governments at the time. We had the the government of the Sultan in Istanbul, which was under occupation, and then you had a government in Ankara, which was led by Mustafa Kemal and his forces of military men, who refused to accept that, and they carried on fighting. The mistake that was probably made was the mistake that the government in Istanbul had made. 
Um, the British had known that the rebellion in Ankara was going to continue no matter what. And rather than reprimanding the rebellion in Ankara, which was led by Mustafa Kemal, if the Sultan in of himself had sort of given at least some lip service to the to forces in Ankara, something could have been swayed in that direction, mm. which would have seen the Sultan in a more positive light. But he didn't do that. And as a result, um, the guys in Ankara then went full throttle. Muslims were still fighting for the Ottoman Empire because that's what they thought they were fighting for. They then defeat the Greeks, kick them out, extend the landmass of what is Turkey today. Mosul was supposed to be part of that. And then we have the Treaty of Lausanne, where they renegotiate um, the new borders of the Turkish Republic. But it wasn't the Republic at this time. It was still the Ottoman state. But the Sultanate in 2022 is abolished. And even the Caliph um, as a sort of like nominal figure. And then in 24, they decide, look, remove the Caliph as well. And let's just have a Republic outright. Okay. Right, good. So we 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 we've kind of ended up at the question that Salman uh, and it took you an hour and a half. <laughs> the, 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 yeah, um, and it could have taken a lot more, really, yeah. if we really kind of dived into it properly. Um, just a sort of a taster, really. So uh, so the the ot the empire you uh, uh, that that's kind of uh, commemorated uh, the, mm-hmm. the, um, uh, 1922 mm-hmm. uh, uh, in that's yeah. the what exactly is that commemorating uh, or, or that's the so that's yeah that that's the uh, emergence of what you would call the, republic. the turkish state but then it becomes the abolishment of the caliphate and creates a turkish republic so okay. it's this state is the state itself because the sultanate is abolished so you don't have you still have a caliph but you know he's just sort of some sort of like nominal power but then once he's removed yeah. Then you have the actual republic, or the, what, what we see the emergence of Kemalism in of itself. Yeah. You don't have Kemalism prior to that, um, in that sense. And you know what's interesting here is, what's interesting is Muslims for a long time were debating the idea of the separation the, of the caliphate from the sultanate. Because mm-hmm. many Muslims are making the argument the sultanate intellectually is not actually an Islamic concept, it's a piecemeal, and so forth. We don't actually need a sultanate, we just need a khilafah. But many of the conservative Muslims and ulama at the time were saying no, because if you if you abolish the sultanate, it pay, because it's so interconnected at this moment in time, that if you abolish that, you're going to pave the way for the abolishment of the caliphate. Let it be. Lesser and so you can see... Kind of yeah, exactly, the words of wisdom, right? Yeah. And so what you can see is... Um, these these debates were also happening at this moment in time. And then you see Muslim ulama going to Egypt in exile, so like Mustafa Sabri Effendi and so forth, very frustrated in terms of what had happened. And if we see the emergence of Islamist movements in particular, they emerge from Egypt where Mustafa Sabri is. Um, and Sabri dies in 53, so it's no He's the last coincidence. Sheikh Islam, isn't it, of the Ottoman? He's not the last Sheikh Islam, but he's the last, like what you'd call proper Sheikh Islam, who had okay. authority in that sense. Yeah, <laughs> okay. because after, you know, after him, just like the, the Caliph, the last Sheikh Islam really is unable yeah. to do much. Okay, right, interesting, great. Okay. Um, I, I, I think you know we, we don't want to sort of uh, torture the the listeners any, yeah. I mean, any, any more. I think Salman is kind of squirming in his. Uh, <laughs> I don't need to go to the loo, but yeah, I, I, I have actually. Um, you know, enjoyed the conversation. Alhamdulillah, it's, uh, Alhamdulillah. I've learned a lot of things, and that, that's the thing with with you know, uh, not to praise you too much to your face, uh, to the screen. Uh, you know, with with somebody who's actually you know made it their life, made it their life's work to kind of study these things, you do get, I guess, contrary to the the normal the standard narratives, you know, or the stereotypes or 
you know, things that are bandied around uh, about I that. Hope so. so I lo- I learned a lot of things that you know I didn't mm. kind of uh, contrary to um, you know uh, what what I just knew kind of absorbed. Uh, through osmosis, you know, this is a Thank term you. that you you mentioned la- in yeah, our last yeah. podcast. I always remember. Right. You know, Can I just uh, add to that yeah. and say, look, um, like I, I had no interest of being a historian. I, I, we we saw that in the first part when I spoke. But when I became a historian, one of the things I started to learn that uh, history is not about the past; it's about the now. It's about how we feel right now, and then how we use the repository of the past to try to make sense of mm. what we, we we think in that sense. And what I learned more and more was that a lot of our young kids these days, they don't have um, anything to draw back on, to pull from, to be able to place themselves in the world that they live in. It, from an ummatic perspective, they, the umma is not just right now, and, and if the umma is an umma of the future and the umma of the past, then they should be able to go into that repository. If you look at Lord of the Rings, if you look at, um, uh, what do you call it, um, the Chronicles of Narnia, Star Wars, uh, One Piece, Naruto, all of these are pulling from repositories of their historical past. And Muslims should be able to do that. And it's, it's, it's for that reason that I, I try to to make it more interesting in that sense. It's, you don't, I don't want to be obsessed with Ottoman studies per se. Mm. Just learn about history in that sense. And we need more people, yeah. Muslim historians, because it was really hard for me, by the way. I mean, I never got any funding or anything. I did this off of my own volition because it's seen as a privileged vocation you know i was i started off as stem and i could have made a lot of money in stem mm. but i i really believe that i could help by helping muslims understand about narrative about ideology about memory about imagination and about turning to people in their past who went through similar experiences that we're going through and there's something we can learn from mashallah and speaking of the now there's something mm. in this when you met i think the treaty of lausanne or something like that mm-hmm. something knocking about in my head that one of these treaties was for a hundred years and it's about to kind of so that's not actually true actually so is this it? is the the yeah. once again the imagination which yeah. is a treaty of lausanne will end but there's no real treaty of that Okay. Uh, of that nature it, it was it was assumed that there was a treaty that would last for a hundred years but i don't think the West would ever have signed a treaty of that nature, knowing the way that they operate. And I haven't seen this treaty, but this is the okay. common mythology yeah. and legend that the Straits will be free. And Maybe that, like you know, some the, kind the, of, the, uh, yeah. you know, millenarian uh, or eschatological yeah. thing that, oh, in, in 2000, yeah. so and so, there's going to be some big uh, changes. Or, yeah. I guess. Anyway. And you know, like Muslims sometimes feel that I'm trying to burst their conspiracy theory bubbles and so <laughs> forth. But I, that's not my intention. What I feel is like if we just have a, a real grasp of what was taking place, it can give us a sense of confidence, you know, going yeah. forward. We don't have to get caught up in these defensive questions. Like a lot of the times when I'm asked questions by Muslims, it's from a defensive position. It's almost like they want me to disprove something. And I'm saying, look, we don't have to be like that. Um, look, let's just learn as much as we can about the past and, and move on from it. Um, yeah. It's okay. And the microchips they put in vaccines. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Uh-oh, I think that I think that joke might have gotten us banned on YouTube, bro. This video deleted or something, but hopefully not. Anyway, um, I learned a lot, like I said. Uh, yeah, yeah, thank you. Smashing uh, kind of assumptions and stuff. But um, if we want to learn a bit more in a bit more structured way, Ustad uh, Kashif, do you wanna let the, the let the listeners and viewers know what's coming up on Sunday? Right. Yes. Yeah, so. Um, uh, but see that segue that, that's <laughs> how you do like a pro <laughs> <laughs> so i mean so, yeah some of the themes uh, that uh you can uh, talk to that camera here 
Oh, right, yeah, great. We're just training up so, our new recruit, you know. So. Yeah, I, I'm not media tech savvy, <laughs> so you have to think me. I'm more book savvy, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> uh, library savvy. Um, yeah, so a number of the themes that um, Dr. Yaqub expanded on so brilliantly today are uh, going to be picked up on uh, in a short series, hopefully, for Islam 21C, uh, both uh, written form um i've got dr yakub i'm well i'm roping him in right now he doesn't he sort of knows about it uh, uh, transcripts of those are going to be pushed his way to just kind of hopefully sign off on um and then uh in addition to the be reviewed right yeah <laughs> so in addition to the, the, the there's written transcripts today two two are mentioned in particular that hopefully will be probably the first coming out which is on the uh the tripolitanian war and the, uh, the the Balkan Wars, um, but in, in addition to those two specifics, the broadly the whole period that we discussed today will have some kind of written treatment, uh, and then uh, a uh, some form of audiovisual uh, production of that as well. Uh, that will take us through this uh, kind of hundred year, a very important hundred year period of the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. Uh, that, that is crucial for us to understand what happened to the empire, why or you know or why we should learn about it, why ultimately it fell, uh, and the impact, the lasting impact it has on our lives today. Um, so, inshallah, yeah, look forward. I hope you look forward to that. Salam. Uh, Doctor Yaqub, Zakallah Khair, so much. Always, for, 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 for having me. For having me, it's wonderful to have the conversation. Hopefully, you can be back on, and there's lots more things uh, for, for us to chat about, yeah. and you know, Thank just you. a little bit more about your life in Istanbul inshallah. and that kind of stuff. Thank you. Fantastic. Take care. Zakallah Khair. And to you at home for watching if you like this podcast give it a like and a share let us know in the comments below what you thought about it you'll notice that i probably didn't say much in this uh, episode so a lot of people would have uh, been happy about that but uh, obviously some people are very sad but hey it's gotta you gotta put the, the right people in the right places i guess in the right uh, seats um if you want to learn more about the series on the the last century of the ottoman empire and ottoman caliphate uh, that Osad Kash was talking about then head over to islam20c.com and also uh, subscribe to our mailing list we'll put a, uh, a link in the description below so that any new content comes straight to your uh, inbox and of course hit the subscribe button and the, and the bell, bell notification so that you're at the front of the queue anytime we upload something new on this channel so without further ado Jazakumullah Khairan uh, for everyone watching, I've been your host Salman Bhatt. This has been your uh, 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 my co-host Osad uh, Kashif Zakiuddin and Zakmul Khairan to our guest uh, Dr. Yaqub Ahmed from Istanbul, uh, Ottoman historian there. Uh, Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. <laughs>